Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I want to make a habit of greeting fellow believers that way because it's true. And I think there are a lot of things around us today um, to get us to forget that, that we're siblings. Um, I'm Brandon. If you haven't had the opportunity to meet me in person yet, I'm sorry. It's going to be incredible when you do. Uh, I'm Brandon. I am here at the well back at home. I started here. Uh, I am going to, I'm directing the student ministry. I'm going to be pastoring alongside Matt and also our other shepherds and Elijah and Neil. And um, it's a joy to be able to do that. It's a joy to be able to do what God has called me to do. Uh, and it's also a joy to be back in student ministry, seeing some of the students who were once upon a time going out the, this door when I was here and who are now with me in middle and high school. Um, it's crazy to think about. But uh, it's incredible when I think about it because I have a desire based on my journey. We, and, and if we have a conversation, you'll know why, but um, I don't have the time to elaborate here. But I have a passion for growing teenagers and, and older teens in their faith um, because that's a very forming time. Uh, and we have that opportunity as older saints to be able to train them up. That's a big desire of mine uh, to see them strengthen in their faith. And I think that that is probably the heart of this passage today, really. Um, if I could name this passage, if I could name this sermon, I think it would be centered around the believer's desire, very general. In this text, we're going to see that this is Paul speaking, but this is not something that's going to just dwell with Paul. It's something that stretches to every believer. I'm going to lay that out. Uh, and I think the culmination of this entire passage can be found as Paul talks about what his glory is. I think, and, I, and I want you to pay attention to that when we get to it. Because the connotation of glory in the scriptures it, it have multiple connotations. One, it can talk about that weightiness, the heaviness, the vastness of who God is, and even his essence, and even his presence when he's around. It's incredible. And there's another connotation of glory that's more so like a trophy case. And when I was reading this passage, just something that came to mind was uh, Canton, Ohio, the Hall of Fame NFL. And there's this big hall with a lot of busts in it. And it displays the glory of the NFL. As a matter of fact, when the, I forget the guy's name, but he goes around to all the people who are invited into the Hall of Fame and he looks them in their eye and he tells them, welcome to Canton. He runs through a list of their achievements and he especially, especially says, we've noticed it. We've recognized all that you've done. And now it's going to be honored and celebrated forever. And the only thing that I can think about when I'm hearing that is, no, it's not. This is going to pass away. Meanwhile, there's a desire to have the achievements noticed in some, in some way. Filled with football glory, the honors, the honorees. And when we get to a theological sense, this type of glory is who we are for the Lord. We are the Lord's trophy case. If there were a third party looking down on the earth, 
then the earth would be lined with human being and human being and relationship and procreation and serving. And we would be his achievements, workmanship. And together, the works created for us that we act in bring him glory. And if somebody could walk through the halls of your life, listing all of your achievements, even your desires, if you could just have this hypothetical hall and it's filled with what you want it to be filled with, what would that be? If you say, hey, the, my deepest desire for my life, when not, my hall of fame is opened up for my own life, what is in your trophy case? Paul's answer is found in this passage. And our answer can be taken from his. And both answers are meant to reflect the Lord's desire for us all. And so I'm going to run through that, and I want to make sure I hit all these things. It's actually pretty simple, but it's multifaceted, and, and, and I want to make sure I don't miss things out, and I also want to make sure this is done in a timely manner. The main idea of all of this is that the heart's desire of the pastor is but a reflection of the heart's desire of a believer. And both should reflect the desire the Lord has for his people. So I want you to be thinking through that. What is that desire? What is this desire the pastor has that's in stretch to the ship, uh, to the sheep? That is also a desire the Lord has for his people. That desire is to cling to the one who is carrying you. That's it. That's it. For the rest of your life. Cling to the one who is carrying you. That's the Lord's desire for his people. He sends that to the shepherd to be able to shepherd people in. And as a result, people are grown with that desire in themselves. And they have that desire for their siblings. To cling to the one who's carrying you. And so Paul begins this section on the defense. And he's done this a lot of times, actually. He's always having to defend himself, this Paul. Starts in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So what's been happening, been leading up in this countercultural uh, series that we've been doing in Thessalonians, Paul is actually excited and overjoyed with what these Christians are doing. He's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. He's highlighting the fact that he knows that they're believers. He's defending his authority over them and shepherding them and caring for them. But then something is happening because he's encouraging them to continue in trials and he's not with them. It, and I think that it, there's some defectors there. He's like, hey, look, he's telling us to do all this stuff. I mean, from, from the jump, this has been uncomfortable and, and that we're going through these things and he's not even with us. Begin to have these doubts for this, this man who supposedly is shepherding you and loving you and caring you, and he's defending himself. And he defend, makes this defense in three uh, specific ways. He's in a strong language. I think we're familiar with that. We sometimes layer our statements and our arguments with specific wording so it gets the point through across. So he uses some strong language and he highlights his righteous motives, and then he showcases his desire to act on those motives. The strong language in verse 17 and 18. 
In the earlier parts of this section, Paul likens himself to a mother nursing her children. That's how he is with these Thessalonians. He says that earlier on in his chapter. Later on, he says that he's a father encouraging and exhorting the church in Thessalonica. And in this part, in verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, this word literally means orphan, sibling, taken away out of fellowship with my other siblings. The affection I have for you is that of a child amongst family. And the dread I face of a child being removed from its family. Look, I didn't leave. I was taken. Please believe it's my desire to be with you. That's my desire. He also goes on real quick and just says, hey, look, just, just, just so you know, this is only physical my desire for you in my heart is still there. That hasn't changed at all. This fundamental relationship that we have that's been established through Jesus Christ, that can't be changed. So this is just a physical displacement, not in heart. Keep that in mind because there's something we can take from that later on. Other strong language. I endeavored eagerly but was hindered by Satan. Look, I acted with haste. And I acted in earnest. I didn't just lackadaisically try to get back to you because I know you would probably say something about me not being there. No, no, no. I genuinely acted on this and I acted immediately and earnestly. And the only way I can describe my reasoning for my not being there is because Satan is hindering me. It's just strong language to showcase that even in the midst of this desire for Paul to be with his family in Thessalonica, the enemy doesn't want such a thing. And the opposition is only described as physical, I mean spiritual, which is not new. He's talked about this and different things that we experienced in this earth. And the spiritual warfare there. It's not saying that Satan therefore is stronger than God, but he's trying to prove a point. That his not being there doesn't have anything to do with his desire. but that he wants to be there. His oppression from being with his family is coming from the outside. The distance that he has with his fellow brothers and sisters, his children, is coming from the outside and it's spiritual. Something else to keep in mind is that today, the distance we have with one another as siblings seems to be coming from the internal. Internally, we've created distance with one another. And the desires to long and be with one another and dwell with each other based on superficial differences, is, uh, it plagues us today. I'll get back to that later on. He continues on verse 19, and I think this is my favorite part, and this is what I was saying is the crux of this entire thing. Paul says, for what is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Something I think that we can be very familiar with is just skepticism when it comes to pastors, if we're being honest. This is the American church. It's the modern church. We've seen empires be built. We've seen people desire to have empires built, massive ministries and all these other things. People have been hurt. They've been burned. 
And if there are empires, then there's always this lingering thought. It's like, okay, well, then there must be a ruler if you're trying to build an empire. And if there are rulers, then naturally there's going to be defectors and people who rebel. But for the Christian, there's one ruler, Jesus Christ, the head of his church. And then everyone else is a servant. Everyone. Some of those servants gifted with specific gifting to equip the rest of those who are gifted, most certainly gifted, in equipping them for ministry. The pastor, called to be the lead dyer and lead self-denier, to model and for the benefit of the sheep. The sheep that Jesus is ultimately Lord over. But if that is not the kingdom that we're living in, if that is not how we view what this church is, then what we're left with are human rulers, human labor, which Psalm 127 says, hey, if the Lord doesn't build it, your labor is in vain. You're wasting your time. Human motivations, a desire to be seen, a desire to be famous, a desire for power and control. A desire for comfort, a desire for pleasure. And what comes from this, especially if these things are attained in some way, can be human jealousy. I want that power. I want that control. I want that notoriety. Or human rebellion. I don't want to adhere to what you were saying. I don't listen to your instruction. I doubt what you're saying. I'm a human cynic. I doubt that you could even lead me. I, desi- I doubt that your desire is even for me. And you doubt the motivations of the shepherd, and you rebel and justify your rebellion because you question the shepherd himself. And Paul is putting that to rest and saying, what other motivation could I possibly have in this. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, I'm not going to present to him a bunch of teams that I built. I'm not going to present a building. I'm not going to present a different, a bunch of documents that I wrote up, books that I wrote and everything else. I'm presenting you. I want Jesus to see your maturation in the faith, the fact that you are clinging to him even when suffering and trial plagues your life. If you look at my trophy case, that's what would be lying here. Believers who are clinging to Jesus Christ. What else would I want out of this? Clinging to the Lord. Lifting voices and rejoice even in the face of suffering. Standing before him with confidence even in the midst of their failures. And not an arrogance and prideful confidence but a confidence that says, I know I don't have to walk through that flaming sword that's guarding Eden anymore. My king did it for me. Even though I stand before the Lord as a failure, he sees me as a child. Confidence. When I think about that, Paul thinks, that is my deepest desire. This is the desire of your pastor, 
Please believe me, I would love to be there with you. And this is something lingering with him as a pastor. I would love to be there with you because I know the trials you're going through and there's something that's keeping me up at night because I understand that even though you're clinging to Jesus in this suffering time, temptation exists. He continues on in verse three, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse, three uh, verse 1. Sorry. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Let me tell you something. The, the relationship between a pastor and a sheep or congregant or church member, however you see it, it's a beautiful relationship. But the, the role of a pastor is a lonely one. It can be. It can be. You're just displaced in different ways. You can be isolating in different ways. And Paul already said that from his general family, he was orphaned and, and torn away. And now he's dwelling with a brother in the work, a fellow pastor, a disciple of his, Timothy. And he says, not only am I going to explain to you through this strong language how much I care for you, not only am I going to highlight my righteous motives and the fact that I desire for you to cling to Jesus, and that's where it ends, I'm willing to be lost in more fellowship. I'm going to send my brother to you because I'm just scared over the fact that temptation could be coming to you all in the midst of this suffering. When you have a desire for the church, meaning the people of the church, Jesus' people, you're willing to do what's difficult in order to edify the church. And when you do what's difficult to edify the church, you glorify the Lord. See how that works? We are his trophy case in obedience and servitude to him. Servanthood. Paul showcases his desire to act. I'm not just speaking on these things, but I'm acting on it. I'm going to send a fellow laborer with you. I couldn't bear it any longer. As I'm thinking through this, I know that a lot of people in trials, the different forms of suffering, probably had a conversation with their pastor, and then the pastor has a response of what Scripture says a truth that they want to remind you of, and maybe you've thought, that's a little cold. Or maybe you've thought, look, I even believe that to be true, but I don't want to hear that right now. And here's a secret. We know. We know. And it's not trying to dismiss you, and it's not trying to be callous of heart, but it's because we know that through trial and suffering, it's a doorway to temptation to loosen your faith. Trials and suffering and pains and turmoils, the enemy gets into your mind to say, Hey, is the Lord really with me? Is this whole faith walk worth it? And Paul recognizes that. He says, I'm just so worried that even though I'm overjoyed over the fact that you're clinging to the Lord in these trials, I'm worried that as this continues, your faith will dwindle. We know that this is a thing. He continues on in, in uh, the second part of verse 3. 
You yourselves know you're destined for this. This is suffering. This is persecution he's talking about. We kept telling you beforehand that you were to suffer affliction. Do we heed these warnings in Scripture? The New Testament is layered with them. And it's not layered with them just like to seek out suffering. It's not a badge of honor. It's an inevitability. And it's told to you because the whole point of you being here is to cling to the Lord. And the reason a pastor would tell you that, hey, suffering is inevitable, the reason the scriptures are layered with warning after warning of suffering being inevitable is because they fear that through suffering you're going to loosen your grip. And there are different types of ways to loosen that grip. This is why the prayer, the Lord's prayer is, Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Obviously, that's not saying, Lord, even though you would like to lead us in temptation, could you not do that? That's not what it's saying. It's saying, as you protect us, continue to do that. Keep us from the schemes of the evil one. Though my very real human experience is going to want to verge off, keep me from the test is literally what it means. And that's kind of a biblical motif. Can't get into it right now, but... It involves temptation and our veering from the Lord. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 13, about the seed that's falling on rocky ground. It sprouts up, and then as soon as persecution or trial comes, then it goes away. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, hey, if you desire to live a godly life, you will experience persecution. Jesus says, hey, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to be sorrow. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Stay with me. Abide in me. Cling to me. Then we're filled with promises like the one in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isn't this related to the different testimonies of deconstruction we hear? Are they not related? Time and time again, I hear people telling stories of why they've walked away from the faith, and maybe it's come through experiencing a, a shakeup in the kingdom of comfort and security. There's some tragedy that's happened. And because the way that your kingdom was built up, it's been destroyed. So now if God isn't good, how could he possibly ruin something in my kingdom like this? Take away a loved one. Take this thing away from me. How could he let harm befall me? Maybe it's the fear of man. I don't want this group to dislike me. I don't want this group to ostracize me or cast me out. And it seems like following Jesus is going to lead me away from them, and I'd rather be with them. Let me go this way. We can look at the world sometimes and say, hey, there's something about this world that I'm finding a little bit more beautiful than its creator. 
want to let that go. That's why we are exhorted and encouraged to carry a cross through perseverance. Jesus is saying, hey, look, following me is carrying your cross. He was reminded to fear the Lord that, hey, there are going to be people who desire for you to be a certain way, live a certain way, think a certain way. Let your fear be directed toward the Lord. Let his will and his desire for you guide your thinking, your actions, your desires. We're called to deny self. Find your identity in Christ. Don't take yourself too seriously, but see yourself accurately. You're a child of the creator of the world. So what does this mean for us? When it comes to the believer's desire, Paul's defending his love to the Thessalonians. And he's drawing his focus on the deep desire he has for the Thessalonians. When we think about our desire for other believers, do your desires match what is laid out in this passage. When you think about other believers, do you just have this desire for them to know the Lord deeper and deeper? Think about the things that just, that give you deep anguish when you think about other believers. Is it their desire, is it your desire for them to grow into the Lord that just keeps you up at night? Or is there some petty disagreement superficial distance that you want them to change their minds on. One of the fruits of being rooted in Christ is having a desire for others to be grown in him. The link we see between Paul and the Thessalonians is a fundamental link in Christ. It's our link. Fundamentally, not superficially. Superficially, we are all different in certain ways. The way that we look, the hobbies we have, the way that we vote. But there should be a fundamental allegiance in Christ that unites us. That's where the deep desire comes from. That's how you can look out at everybody and say, my desire is for you to know Jesus more and more, to cling to him more and more. That's where Paul's joy comes from. That's what the Lord's joy, uh, the Lord's joy comes from when, when we act in that. Desire to grow and know him more. I think about how this is lining up with what Proverbs 22 says. It's, it's in different phases of life we can see this desire. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that they should go, that they would not depart from it. That's the desire of the parent. You can have a bunch of other superficial desires and want your child to be a certain thing. But if you are in Christ, your deepest desire is to be able to call your son or daughter brother and sister. The only time my grandmother got to hear me preach I had been preaching for a while now, but she finally got out to see me preach. Um, and at that point, she had dementia, and it progressed. Uh, it progressed more, but she was, it wasn't as bad as it was before she went to the Lord. And when dementia was progressing, she was losing her ability to speak, and it would frustrate her because she would want to talk. 
And you could tell she wanted to say something and she couldn't say anything. And so she would just have this stern look on her face and she would try to, her mouth would be moving very fast because she wants to say something. And so after I preached, she came up to me and just grabbed my hand and just kept smiling. And, and she wasn't saying anything. I, I, she probably wanted to, I don't know, but she wasn't frustrated. She was content in the moment. And I'm telling you this, if you ask her what I preached about, she'd be like, I don't know. If you ask her how I did and if the, the wow factor and the styling was good, I don't really care about that. But when you see the fundamental link and then you have this deep desire that's rooted in the Lord and you raise children in the faith and then they raise children in the faith and you see that come to fruition when a grandchild can be called sibling. Brings you joy, deep joy. That's the desire we should all have. This desire that we, as brothers and sisters, would be deeply rooted in the faith, even in the midst of trial. That's the desire of your pastor. I recognize that in different cultures, mainly mine, the pastor is elevated in a way, probably detrimentally so. And then you go to the other end of the extreme, the pastor is just really neglected. It's not even worth really praying for. Just make sure you get the numbers right, get the work done. But still, we're all siblings. And when the pastor is working in the love of the Lord, his desire is for you to cling to him more and more, even in the midst of trial. Remember that for your pastor. Remember it for yourselves. Desire that for one another. And find joy in the fact that this is a trophy case of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are your workmanship, Lord. People can look at us and they can look at our lives and they can learn about you. Father, bring the weightiness of that on our hearts. If there is an aspect of us that has neglected that, the fact that we are your workmanship, we are your trophies, we are your glory. We repent of it, Lord, and we desire to live in such a way that onlookers learn about you. Your scripture says to let our light shine in such a way that people would end up glorifying you. That is my desire for myself, my family, and all of us here. I pray that, that we would all share such a desire to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.